Startle us, O God, with your truth. Open us to what you are trying to teach us. Give us courage to speak and to act. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is the second of two sermons about the story of Moses at the burning bush. Last week we talked about Moses as a reflective and curious person who is given spiritual courage for the challenging days ahead. This week we turn to those challenging days, the call God places on Moses' life to be a prophet, to return to Egypt and speak, to speak out to free the Hebrew people from oppression. The need for spiritual courage and the call to speak up for justice is a message for all of us in ancient days and today also. Today I will be applying this lesson from Moses to the need for the church to speak out against racial injustice. Jana spoke of it in this morning's welcome that our church's session has been working for about a year, having some ongoing conversations about racism and white privilege and what it has to do with the church. In this calendar year, we are bringing those conversations to the congregation. This morning, I will be talking specifically about why I think it is important for predominantly white congregations to talk about racism. And as part of today's sermon, I'm going to share with you some of my own personal stories. Back in January, I was grateful, as I'm sure you were, to hear stories from members of the Knox session who told us about their own experiences of racism. I hope that adding my story to theirs will help us to see in some additional concrete ways what Moses' story has to say to all of us. So here's a personal story I need to share with you. I was in the third grade. After school each day, the bus dropped me off at the Jewish Community Center in my neighborhood. I went there after school until my mom picked me up. It was a diverse place, not just with Jews and non-Jews, but also black kids and white kids, for such was the neighborhood. One day we were playing kickball. Following a botched play, I got into a big argument with another kid on my team who happened to be black. The argument escalated, and I said to him every nasty thing I could think of to say, culminating with calling him the N-word. I was in the third grade. I got in big trouble. My parents were horrified, and the incident became an opportunity for my parents to talk to me about racism. It is one of my clearest childhood memories that day. Those parts of the story are important because I want to be clear about why I am telling you this story. 
This is not some story about how I grew up in blatantly racist circumstances, but then one day came to my senses. You see, neither me nor either one of my parents have any idea how, as a third grader, I even knew the N-word, nor did they know ex how, that I, how, how I figured out exactly the way that it was used. I grew up in relatively progressive and diverse environments, but the point of this story, the point of the way that it relates to what we have to say about racism, is that racism is deeply ingrained in our culture. In surprising and insidious ways, it creeps into our lives. And one of the things that keeps racism alive is that progressive, open-minded, well-meaning people participate in racism all the time. Here's another story from my adult life. I do like to think of myself as a well-intentioned white person, one of the good guys when it comes to racism. So I was excited when a board on which I serve made a commitment several years ago to diversify our board membership. And three years later, we got it done. 50% of our board seats were occupied by people of color. My education about racism was just beginning. It still is. One afternoon during a board meeting, we had an intentional discussion about racism. One of our white board members, a sort of elder statesman in the group, was not sure why we needed to talk about racism in the church. He began to tell stories about the things he and his church had done over the years to fight racism. A series of stories about charitable giving and helping young black men get a leg up in the world and how those things are happening more and more and racism will eventually go away. Just about everyone in the room was shifting uncomfortably in our seats because of the way that story was being told. There was no mention of the centuries of slavery in our country, the broken promises of the Reconstruction era, Jim Crow segregation, and racist polities of today concerning criminal justice and housing and health care and education and the tremendous disparities they have created. That gentleman meant well, but he was essentially suggesting the way to stop racism is for every person of color to find a smart, kind-hearted white person to show them a way to, to a better life. This story, like my first one, has a specific point, and I do not want you to miss it. The problem was not so much with what that man said. He spoke honestly. He put himself out there, and some great learning came from the discussion that followed. The problem was this. All of us in that diverse room were listening with discomfort. But when he was done, none of the white people in the room said a word. We sat there in silence until finally one of the people of color in our group spoke up and explained why what he was saying was hurtful. That day I learned about what people who work on racial dialogue call white silence. 
I haven't heard that term before, white silence, but I can spot it when I see it, and I imagine you can too. Have you ever been at Thanksgiving dinner and Uncle Bob says something racist, but no one calls him out on it because it's much easier to just keep the peace? Have you ever been at a party where someone tells a racist joke or makes a racist comment in a room full of white people, but even if there are other people in the room who you know found it inappropriate, no one says anything out loud? It's less common, but maybe you've been in a situation like the one I described. It's a mixed group, and maybe even the topic is racism, but it rarely seems to be a white person who speaks up to call out what is wrong. All of this white silence takes place because we don't want to ruin the dinner, or sound too politically correct, or be told we have no sense of humor. But the fact is that our resistance to those mild discomforts is something that allows racist dialogue to continue, even and particularly among people who do not think of themselves as racist. I know I have sometimes told myself that at least I'm not the person making the bad comment, but by remaining silent, I am allowing racism to persist. And when I leave it up to a person of color to call out racism, I am abandoning my responsibility to speak up and make the world a little better. And I'm leaving that responsibility instead to people who are victims of racism in a way that I am not. Enough about me, though. Let, let's talk about us. Let's talk about the church and what is required of us. And let's do so in the context of how God calls people to assume responsibility for justice in the world. The stories I've told you are directly related to what happens to Moses at the burning bush. Many of you will remember from last week that when he arrives at the burning bush, Moses has been living a relatively easy life. Disgusted by the plight of the Hebrews in Egypt, he fled to the distant land of Midian. The oppression of the Hebrews is no longer a daily reality for him. It has little impact on his life. But at the burning bush, the Lord tells Moses it is time for him to go back to Egypt and speak. Moses is full of excuses. For 28 verses, he argues with God. We only read a few of them. Who am I to go, Moses says. What will I say? What if they don't believe me? I am not eloquent. And when God answers all of those concerns, Moses says in chapter 4, verse 13, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. I don't claim to have anything in common with Moses as a prophet, but I do share his love for excuses. If I'm honest, the fact is, I don't want to talk about racism. Some of you who have listened to my sermons in the past year may have thought to yourself, Adam must really like talking about racism. And that's not true at all. 
I beat around the burning bush and I say to God things like, I'm not good at talking about this. Or, I don't have the training or the tools for this kind of work. And finally, like Moses, oh Lord, would you please send someone else. But the more I think about it, the more I know that all of my excuses are worthless. If I am honest, I am a comfortable, privileged person whose life has included almost no oppression of any kind. It is my business to speak up when I witness injustice. And injustice is there. In the country where we live, the ten richest people are all white. The United States Congress and the governors of our states are more than 90% white, as are all top United States military advisors. People who decide what TV shows we watch, what books we read, what news is covered, and what music is produced are all more than 85% white. These are the people who hold power and influence in our country. By contrast, here in Cincinnati, 76% of people who live in poverty are racial minorities. In Hamilton County, the infant mortality rate for African Americans is three times what it is for whites. In Cincinnati, 74% of white people own homes compared to 33% of the black population. And though only 12.5% of Ohio residents are African American, African Americans make up 45% of our state's prison population. Race is a social construct. Hundreds of years ago, white people made it up. A recent Knox Faith Formation class explored the cultural invention of race. But we can see how real the results have been. Both power and suffering reside in our society along racial lines. And by the way, 90% of Presbyterians are white people in a country where soon it will be true that less than 50% of citizens are white. If we want our church to survive and be relevant, we have got to pay attention to race. I want to say again with emphasis that the point of the personal stories I told you this morning is not to accuse myself or any of you of being aggressively racist individuals. The problems we're talking about are structural. We live in the midst of structures and systems and institutions that allow racism to continue and thrive. I see just how insidious and powerful those systems are when I witness economic disparities in our city and when I reflect on my own personal behaviors back in childhood and today. I put together in my mind the story that I told from my childhood and the story from my adulthood about my white silence and the disparities in our society and I have become convinced that talking about racism is unavoidable. And racism is dehumanizing to all of us, even people who have benefited from it 
God didn't create us to live in the state of disparity and fear that we have made. Sometimes it may be appropriate for people of color to be present or to lead the discussion, but for now we are a 98% white congregation and there is work we can do here. A friend of mine who is a person of color refers to racial justice as white people's work. Our ancestors created all of this. And instead of counting on minorities to talk about it, it is really those of us who have been the beneficiaries of racism who need to be willing to talk about it. We are trying to create more space for this in our church. That's why your session has been talking about it. That's why your elders shared their stories last month and why I'm sharing mine today. There are two Lenten reading groups beginning next week. They are led by members of the Knox session, and they will explore a book called The New Jim Crow. If the language I use about racism being structural or systemic, if that is new to you or unclear, please consider joining one of those groups. A class just completed this morning about structural racism, but an evening programming coming up in April will also allow a larger group of us to do some of the same learning together. Other opportunities will follow. I often feel poorly equipped to lead discussions about racism or fearful that I will do it imperfectly and make mistakes, and I will. I'm grateful that our session has been willing to engage in this work with me. And I pray that God will grant all of us some of what God gave Moses so long ago. The spiritual courage to take on a task that we're not sure about. And to trust that God's will will be done. Amen.